from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. On this podcast extra, we sometimes present stories about science and creativity. This time, it's part two of a three-part series about animals being creative. Only one species, other than humans, has ever had a hit record album. Not a bird. I personally do love birdsong, and we all tend to take them and their music for granted. But when whales were first recorded, they broke big. I remember as a kid in the 1960s putting that first record of whale songs on the turntable. Typical playlist at the time, Simon and Garfunkel, Creedence Clearwater, Humpback Whales. Those late 60s Humpback Whale recordings really did revolutionize how we all thought about those animals and how we think about other species in general. Michael May has our story. This I've always thought was the best recorded song That's biologist Roger Payne. He's at home in landlocked Vermont, listening to the songs of his beloved humpback whales in a wood-paneled living room. And that sort of theme evolves as the whale sings it. These sounds are, with no exception that I can think of, the most evocative, most beautiful sounds made by any animal on Earth. Payne began his career studying the sounds made by bats and moths. Then in 1966, he turned his attention to whales. At that point, there was very little known about the sounds whales made or why they made them. He went to Bermuda, where whales passed on their migratory routes. And there he met sound engineer and military researcher Frank Watlington. And it was Watlington who gave Payne this recording. He wasn't even sure what it was. You're going to hear explosions of dynamite. That's what Frank was listening for, was those sounds. And the whale was just getting in his way. But it's more than that. Frank was the one who had the presence of mind to record this and hang on to it. Payne brought the recordings back to his office in New York, and he listened deeply. And I would just leave it on, just going again and again and again. And when you do that to something, you can't help but memorize it. I mean, of course, you hear, you don't even have to think about it. You just eventually, you know what it does. And after a long while of listening to this, I suddenly realized, my God, this thing is repeating itself. This was a startling discovery. If an animal repeats a sound, like a bird or a cricket, well, then it's technically a song. These, however, were arguably the most complex songs of any animal. They were 10 minutes long or more, and there was no break before they repeated. Payne and a colleague used a spectrograph to turn the songs into visual patterns. Their work was published in the journal Science. At the time, whales were being hunted to extinction. Roger Payne saw the songs as a call to arms. Do you make cat food out of composer poets? I think that's a a crime. For the next two years, Roger Payne spent as much time distributing these recordings as studying them. He gave them to musicians, composers, singers. What I wanted to do was try to build them into human culture. Anything, any damn thing that anybody wanted to try, hey, that seemed fine to me. It was 1969 in the summer, 
And I was playing the long-suffering Solveig in uh, Peer Gynt. That singer, Judy Collins. And this tall man came backstage, and I didn't know him. He said, I'm, I'm Roger Payne. I study whales. I'm a cetologist. And he handed me this little package. Inside was a reel-to-reel tape. She took it home and put it on. I was very emotional. Angst for being a human being on a planet where they also live. <laughs> uh, guilt for doing what we do to them. And that they're so smart, and they've been here so long. And they certainly might have some insights about what we could do to live a better way. Farewell to Tarwathi, adieu Mormonti. This is Farewell to Tarwathi from Collins' 1970 record, Wales and Nightingales. It's a traditional whaling song. The record went gold, and it introduced millions to the songs of the humpback whales. Collins says the whales sing in their own scale, and she intuitively matches it. In hunting the Then you hear the whales come in, and then I join them, and it is like like a call and response in a way because I am having a dialogue with them, and vice versa because they're answering me as well, and in a sense reaching out into the human species, trying to give us some inkling of what is going on in the real world. Judy Collins devoted the royalties of that song to Payne's conservation work. Soon after, Capitol Records released Payne's recordings of humpback whale songs. It's still the best-selling Natural Sounds album of all time. And just as Payne had hoped, these strange, mournful sounds inspired a movement, Save the Whales. By 1972, the United States had banned whaling and whale products. This was part of a moment. George Lipsitz is an American studies professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He used to hear the whales on a community radio station in St. Louis. The whale sounds and the ocean sounds were were number one on their playlist. At that time, there was a fight over that particular radio station. Lipsitz was in a camp that wanted more airtime for political discussions. But one of the station's managers thought the humpback whales were more radical. It's almost like we're each hoping for a kind of magic to conjure a, a, a new world into being. America had just experienced the Kent State shootings. The Vietnam War seemed like it would never end. There was the death of Martin Luther King. Lipset says people were questioning the very notions of progress and civilization. And a suspicion that maybe we learn that meanness and that cruelty by establishing these rigid boundaries between the human and the animal and between culture and nature. And so there became a sense of, what if we're not alone? What if there's more to learn? Uh, What if human guile uh, cuts us off from uh, essential relations to other species? Belipsit says artists were drawn to the whale songs for another reason. There was a great effort to explore the aleatory, uh, accidental sounds that could be made Uh, in studios and in nature. These seem like total opposites, but what they're attempting to do is to go beyond the simple chords and harmonies of pop music. He sees the whale songs, the free jazz movement, and Jimi Hendrix's use of feedback all as part of the same artistic revolution. Music and the thinking around it have become so conventional. If you disrupt that convention, all things become possible. 
all things become possible. We don't really think that way anymore. And humpback whales no longer sell the number of records they did back in the 1970s. Of course, nobody does. These days, environmental recordings are mostly there for relaxation, like at spas. But these haunting calls continue to intrigue scientists and musicians alike. On this record from 2001, whale researcher and musician Lisa Walker went to humpback whale feeding grounds in Alaska. Using an underwater speaker and a microphone, she piped her violin down among the singing whales, captured the results, and then arranged a string concerto in the key of whale. Scientists remain mystified by the whale's complex songs, what information they convey, why they evolve. Musicians, on the other hand, continue to find their own way of going deep below the surface. That was Michael May, who is now the senior producer of NPR's Story Lab. The show will resume in no time, but I did want to take this moment to suggest you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, feel free to write a review, which does help people discover the show. And now, back to the podcast. So whales have had crossover hits in the human population, but now it turns out that some of their songs are particular hits among the whales themselves. You might imagine that whale songs were programmed genetically, that each species has its tune and that's that. But no, not at all. Humpback whales, in particular, change their tunes frequently. Ellen Garland is a researcher who studies how whales adopt new songs. She works for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Seattle. I asked Garland how we even know they're singing and not just talking. Well, for the humpback whales that I work with, the song is produced by the male, and it's a sexual display. So it really is a song. So we don't know whether he's singing to attract uh, ladies or whether it's in something to do with male-male competition, but it's something to do part of the, the mating display. Now, the other sounds that they make are called social sounds, and those are perhaps a little bit more communicative. Uh-huh. Males, females, calves, juveniles can all make those social sounds. And so talk about what you found when, when you looked at how the whale song does change over time. So what I found was uh, song types originate in the East Australian population and then were passed sequentially from one population to the next across the South Pacific. And this took approximately two years. In each population in each year, all males will sing the same song type, so they're matching. And then the song will change in a small progressive way through time. But we also found that these brand new song types would appear in the population and then revolutionize the song in that population. And this happened really rapidly, say within a season, which is two to three months. So they're learning this brand new display, throwing the old one straight out the window and incorporating it all in. So it's a very rapid time. It's it's just, I, I love this fact. I thank you for discovering it. And so when you say that they, they this radically new song, how different? Could I hear the difference? I think you could. So Humpback's song is composed of multiple different sounds, but it's how they arrange them each year that changes. I want to play a clip of, of one of the songs here. Now, if you can... Tell me what's going on in this recording. 
What, what do you hear that I don't hear? I hear a number of sounds being repeated, and that makes up a phrase there. And you can hear suddenly we've gone into a different type of sounds here. And this is a, a new phrase. This is a new theme. So what you've got is just one phrase from each theme of this particular song type. And then I want to play the song that I guess replaced that one in the following season. Yes. You can see how um, this sounds different. Definitely. And it appears that they seem to like novelty in their songs. So when small changes come into the population or a completely new song type comes in, they seem to grab onto this novel song and all the males in the population will change to this new song type. And we think this is linked in, of course, with sexual selection and the males wanting to be that little bit different to the male next to them to possibly be a little bit more attractive to that female. Uh Uh-huh. And it does it quickly. It it is really impossible to resist saying, well, this is just like pop music in the human world. Yeah, the music industry or sometimes fashion. And, you know, if someone's wearing a new fashion, everyone suddenly wants to wear that new piece of clothing. So you call these cultural transformations. What in in your scientific world does – what is cultural about them? Well, culture is basically learning. They have to learn them from other whales around them. And then they're copying them. So it's not genetically based. Uh-huh. They're learning them from other animals. So it's a cultural aspect. Yeah. It seems to me the this passing uh, of more novel uh, artifacts from population to population it sounds awful lot like art or entertainment to me. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a very interesting cultural transmission. So it really is a cultural trait. Yeah. And the more research that everyone is doing, the more they're finding that different animals seem to have at least one, if not a suite, of cultural traits, which is really interesting. Uh, I could talk to you all day about this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ellen Garland is a biologist, and you can hear her recordings of whale songs going in and out of style at studio360.org. Because I've heard that song before The lyrics said forevermore Forevermore's a memory And that's it for part two of our Science and Creativity series about how animals can be created. The series was produced with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. In our next installment, we ask if animals could make their own wildlife movies, what would they sound like? Happy Feet 3? Not really. I was three wet seasons old when I first detected the wonderful odor. It was coming from her sexual opening. A new kind of animal cartoon. Next time on part three of our Science and Creativity series on animals.
Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 